Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. What is it about a great movie or a great book that isn't great one time, but it's great time and time again? It draws us back. It calls us to read it, to study it, to relive the energy of it again and again. This isn't true simply for adults. I see this in my three-year-old son, who apparently the bear under the stairs is a fascinating tale that you and everyone should read time and time again. Because as soon as he sees that last page coming, again, please again, once more, read it again, read it again, read it again. We not only love stories, but we cannot live without God's grand true story of redemption. And this story bears repeating over and over again. The repetition not only brings out different aspects of the story, for surely you see things new when you look at them in different lights time and time again, but over time, the story itself actually shapes you, and it begins to form you and impress in upon you so that the themes of that story become you. They make their mark on us. To view life through the lens of God's story, to gear our hopes and our dreams, and to even find our place in God's story is more and more what it means to be marked by the glory of Christ's redemption. While Paul is not writing a story per se here to the Ephesians, he's writing an epistle, not reading a narrative. He is, though, repeating key themes over and over again in the first three chapters specifically of this book before us to the Ephesians. And that is to help us understand what is God doing for the sake of His own name through His Son and through the power and the ministry of the Spirit. We are to come face to face with this time and time again. So let's review some of Paul's strategic reinforcement of these truths in chapters 1 and 2. So Paul has been emphasizing with considerable repetition and force the glorious realities. As he says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that flow to God's people through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus' death and the power of His resurrection. So Jesus, as Paul explains has granted these spiritual blessings because they have a clear purpose. What is the purpose? What is the thing that's getting done by these immense spiritual blessings? Well, in other words, why have sinful rebels who have been chosen before the foundation of the world, what is their purpose, as we read in chapter 1? So they might be holy and blameless before Him. Proximity matters. Remember that from last week? Why have we, as God's people, been adopted through Christ's blood and now are sons through Christ? So we might be a people who exist, as he says three times in chapter 1, to the praise of His glorious grace. Why have we been redeemed through Christ's blood, forgiven of our trespasses, lavished with this grace, made known the mystery of His grace, granted an eternal inheritance, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit? Why have all these glorious realities come to us? Why? 
so we might be to the praise of His glorious grace. That we might be worshipers of God. The glory of God spotlighted in and through people who once were far off, but who now have been brought near. They used to be far away, now they are near. They used to be His enemies, now they are His family. They used to be dead in trespasses and sins, now they are alive in Jesus. They used to be bitter enemies with one another, now they love each other because they're family. It would seem Paul paints with a dozen different colors here and uses a number of different metaphors to enhance the picture of sinners being restored to fellowship with God. And this brings God great glory. So well as we'll see at the end of chapter 2 here, Paul is not done using metaphors. He likes to use them a lot. And he doesn't really care that we move in nice, neat compartments and we tie up all the loose ends now you've got to complete this metaphor. It's not going to make sense if you switch too quickly. He doesn't care. He moves really quickly, and we see a lot of them come to us at the end of chapter 2. Three powerful metaphors come to the forefront to help us understand how this glory of God is being set on display through a redeemed people. People who have experienced the peace that has been made for them through Christ's sacrifice. So last week we considered the call to remember our former exclusion from Christ in verses 11 and 12, along with the call to realize our present inclusion with Christ and all the accompanying benefits that come in verses 13 through 18. So in verse 18, Paul makes clear that Jews and Gentiles, this hostility that once stood between them has been killed by Christ. And now, those who have trusted in Christ's sacrifice share the Holy Spirit, access to God through one Holy Spirit. It's pretty amazing. In verses 19 through 22 now, we read, So then, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we see first, we're going to consider these three metaphors as our main concepts that we try to mine out for all that Paul wants us to see from them. So, the call to realize our citizenship in God's kingdom, to realize our membership in God's family, and then to realize our partnership in God's temple-building enterprise. Before we go any further, let's just ask God through His Spirit to be glorified in all that we seek to glean from His Word. Father, glorify Yourself now. Make the power of Your words what stick in our hearts. May You give us a grace to block out all the competing fears and thoughts and ideas 
and responsibilities and tasks that await us, whether an hour from now or in the days to come this week, I pray that you would grant us a discipline of heart and mind and a wide open receptivity to what your spirit would do among us. Grow us as we seek to stare into the the power of your word now. In Christ we pray, amen. So verse 19 begins by highlighting this transfer of citizenship. So we see the call to realize our citizenship in God's kingdom. So to be a stranger was to be a foreigner lacking all privileges and rights since you did not belong to the land that you were in. And similarly, an alien, as the text reads, strangers and aliens, an alien, someone who who may be from a foreign land, but is living in a place where they have far less privileges than their homeland. Now, some of you know this well because you've traveled abroad and you've been different places where there is a, a sense of maybe the first, depending on however long you were there, there is a sense of intrigue and excitement. And every different cultural dynamic is, wow, that's neat. We do it this way, but they do it this way. And perhaps if you stayed for any length of time, there was a change of mind about those things. Maybe a couple weeks later you say, can you believe these people? Why in the world? I know this experience to me a few times where I just want to get out of the vehicle, get in the middle of the traffic and say, okay, folks, there are better options here. We don't have to stay here for an hour bottleneck like this. We can actually follow some pretty basic ideas and maneuver our way out of this. Right? There's different cultural dynamics, but what those do over time is they breed a sense of vulnerability. We're not home, right? And then home begins to become a sweet idea. I can't wait to be where I'm from, where maybe my family is, the, the place that I know. This is life, though, this sense of vulnerability, being in a foreign place, for life outside of God's kingdom. The NIV makes Paul's point really clear in verse 12 of chapter 2 that Gentiles were once excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, but now they are fellow citizens with the saints. And you share in these rights and privileges as God's kingdom citizens. They are yours as well. Paul writes similarly to the, to the Colossians that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The, the text, as we see here, tells us that we are fellow citizens with the saints. With the saints. Who are the saints here? Well, they are fellow citizens, Jew and Gentile, who together share membership in God's united family. And although Paul doesn't spend a whole lot of time expanding on this idea of the kingdom, God's kingdom is not a territorial jurisdiction, but it is His gathered people, united under His command and serving His eternal purposes. God's kingdom, as John Stott writes, is God Himself ruling His people and bestowing upon them all the privileges and responsibilities which His rule implies to this new, international, God-ruled community. And as another pastor writes, we no longer live on a passport, but we really have our birth certificates. We really do 
belong to God's kingdom. What peace we have in knowing Christ has made us citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And as we seek first the kingdom of God, as Jesus instructs us, all the necessities of life, all the things that we know God knows we need for life to glorify Him will be given to Him. It's an easy thing to say, very, very hard to live. But living in God's kingdom is coming to embrace life under the rule of a sovereign king. Again, easy thought, very, very hard to live under, conceptually, once we come to learn this rule, a whole different matter. Our world, though, is anti-authoritarian every, everywhere we turn, isn't it? Overturn this establishment. Become your own Lord and Master. Don't let anyone tell you who you are or, or what you should do or what you should not do. You are king of you is the theme, the melody line that we hear set to a thousand different arrangements week in and week out. And while these sentiments might sound compelling to our natural desires, there is no joy. There is no joy like coming to live under the rule of Christ. Learning to live in submission to God's goodwill and His pleasure is true joy. He created us to live by every word that proceeds from His mouth, not ours. What an amazing thought to know that we are now citizens of a heavenly kingdom with the saints. All those who are now holy and blameless who will stand before Him through the blood of Christ. Verse 19, the second half of it, continues with a quick merge into Paul's second metaphor that he states that we are members of the household of God. So the call for us is to realize, understand the membership that we have through Christ to His family. So if kingdom conveys a sense of national allegiance perhaps on a broad scale, well, membership in a family makes things a whole lot more intimate and personal. We are members of God's family. Think on that. We are members of God's family. No longer, as Paul says, sons of disobedience, children of wrath, but now we are his kids, his family. Paul praises God in chapter 1 for the fact that in love God predestined sinners for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And as his adopted children, we have unhindered access now to the Father. This won't be the last time in this letter that Paul highlights this theme either, for the, the fatherhood of God will ground his prayer in chapter 3, as well as his argument for walking worthy of our calling and pursuing unity with one another in chapter 4. But here, however, Paul's emphasis seems to be more on the brotherhood and, and sisterhood, the family of God, the household of God. Close affection, love, Care, support, encouragement, needed exhortation, all of these should be one of the distinguishing marks of the household of God. God has a family, and you are part of it if you are trusting in Jesus. God has a family, 
And you are part of it if you're trusting in Him. Our individual families are then to be reflections of His family. A father and a mother's love for their children should reflect God's love for His children, whether in discipline or in moments of great pleasure. Our families, all Christian families, you might say, should not be disconnected from God's family. Does it make any sense that the thing that's modeling itself after the main thing finds no connection with one another? That our individual families should not find their joy and love and sacrificial outpouring for God's family? If you stop and think about it, our first allegiance is to God and to the adopted siblings that we have been united to through Christ's death, our eternal family. And while it's imperative that Christian fathers and mothers fulfill their unique responsibilities to one another in marriage and also in cultivating word-saturated, Christ-honoring homes, these biblical goals, healthy marriage, godly family, should never be pursued in opposition to the other biblical goal of love for God's family. Some examples of how this might play out. A family might conclude that taking a job promotion that pays amazing in some other part of the country might not, might not be worth it if it means leaving a church family where you and your household are thriving spiritually and if the move would involve landing in a location where you you don't know a single healthy church all for the net benefit of setting myself up for something better in the future or a, a sizable pay raise. A family might conclude that consulting their church's calendar would be a wise choice before making all their personal plans for the year. And this could be a way of showing that God's family in His church is significant and is important. A family might choose to sync up on the discipleship strategies for their home along with what the people of God and the church of God are doing to build themselves up. So things like Scripture memory, unifying, rather than maybe having all of our own separate streams doing our own things, working and walking collectively and corporately together as a family might be really, really helpful ideas. Reading of the sermon text, uh, family devotions, even serving together at work days. The overall discipleship strategy of your family, merging it with, with that of God's family. Perhaps embracing your membership in God's family is as practical as facing your fears of actually pursuing meaningful, Christ-honoring relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Actually Facing those fears, and I know it's held by a lot of us, of breaking that ice and actually going and talking to that person that you know you've seen for months, and you're, you have that twinge of guilt that I know I should know this person by now. But pursuing that and saying, I'm sorry, I haven't gotten to know you. My name is such and such. And pursuing one layer at a time a depth of Christ-honoring relationships with each other. And notice I put this on us. Us, you, pursuing relationships with each other. We set ourselves up to fail when we walk into church hoping that we'll receive brotherly affection. Or to make matters worse, we walk 
into the church building, ready to use our membership in God's family as a club against others, always ready to point out how we are not being loved the way that we think we're entitled to be loved, and that if this really is the family of God, I ought to be just swimming in all kinds of affection, and where is it, right? That sounds terrible, but it's not too far from sometimes where our thoughts can go. If we truly treasure the household of God the way that we should, we should enter the doors each and every Lord's Day with a keen sense that these relationships have actually been purchased by the blood of Christ. And as such, we must treasure one another as precious in God's eyes. So with family in the household of God, we are safe we're accepted, we're loved. But this household of God, as we read in verse 20, is linked to the third metaphor that Paul employs here when he says that is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we see this call to then realize our partnership in God's temple-building enterprise. So even in our technologically advanced world where books and groceries and even our dinner can arrive with a swipe of our finger on our doorstep in just a matter of minutes, there's still a recognition, though, that buildings serve an important purpose, that brick and mortar are still really essential for commerce. Buildings are important now, as they have always been throughout humanity, whether for business or art or worship. Regardless of how a building is used in its function, every building must have a good foundation. Or like the parable Jesus tells, if it's built upon sand, it's going to suffer a great fall. Paul says the foundation of this structure that he's speaking of is the apostles and the prophets. So what does this mean? Well, apostles here is not a reference to pioneer missionaries or church planters. It refers to the 12 disciples, but is not limited to them. For there are other gifted and influential leaders in the early church that are named in other passages as apostles. Think of Paul. We think of James, the half-brother of Christ, and Barnabas, and perhaps a couple others. But this tribe of individuals was used by God to lay the foundation of the church primarily through their teaching as each of them were personally commissioned by Jesus and they had personally witnessed the resurrected Christ. So what they taught, writes John Stott, they expected the church to believe and then to preserve. What they commanded, they expected the church to obey. So contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church would espouse, that apostolic authority has been transmitted through the Pope, we see it is rather through the establishment of the Scriptures. With the passing of James, there's no mention of another apostle taking his spot. And then Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 15, he sees himself as the last person Jesus appeared to, indicating there would be no apostles appointed after him. So the apostolic office, it would appear, served its purpose. It did its job. 
It provided the foundation for the church. Apostolic authority would now be preserved in the Scriptures. The prophets, they also played a key role in the founding of the church. And while theologians take different views on who this group was or even is, suffice it to say, I think these are individuals who spoke infallibly the words of God. If they did not, just like the prophets in the Old Testament, they were not to be believed. Or if their lives utterly discredited their message, they were not to be believed. But since both the apostles and the prophets seem to have performed ministries that were temporary in nature, we see their ministry as providing a firm groundwork for the founding of the church. And consequently, this is, this is why we don't routinely pray that God would raise up apostles and prophets in our midst here, in the same way we do pray that God would continue to raise up elders and deacons, as that is an ongoing way in which the church is built up and served. They provided this foundation for the church. Christ Himself, though, is seen as the cornerstone. So this would have been the principal stone placed at the corner of the foundation that would make sure the building was stable and square and tightly bound together. Some of these stones in Jerusalem have been discovered to have been over 38 feet in length, absolutely massive. Archaeology has revealed, as in ancient Nineveh, that oftentimes a royal name would have been inscribed on these stones, and they considered more significant to the integrity of the building than even the foundation itself was the the work and the role that this cornerstone played to the integrity of the building as a whole. Paul seems to reference Isaiah 28, verse 16, which is stated in judgment against a rebellious Israel. So this is what the sovereign Lord says, Isaiah writes, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be shaken. How true this is now for the Christian who relies on Christ, the precious cornerstone. The whole structure of the household of God, as Paul writes, is held firmly together through Christ. But this building is growing. It's growing. What does that mean? How is that happening? Well, it is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And as Peter writes, Christians are living stones being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. An amazing, an amazing idea. And this is where I'd like to pause for a moment and step back and explore some biblical themes that run the gamut of Scripture in order to better position ourselves to really understand perhaps what Paul has in mind here as he's pulling together a number of ideas regarding the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. So as a bit of a, an excursus for a moment, a, an intentional rabbit trail, would you go with me here as we consider the dwelling place of God first in the Old Testament? So location, location, location. It's true in real estate, and it's true in biblical theology. Under the Old Covenant, when God met with His people for blessing in one way or another, oftentimes that physical place was considered sacred 
for generations. And we see this in a number of different places. First and foremost, we see this in the Garden of Eden, where the continual refrain of it is good comes and reminds us that this place where God walked with Adam and Eve was indeed sacred space. For God blessed His work on the seventh day and consecrated it for His purposes. We see at Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, Abraham obeys God and nearly sacrifices his only son Isaac there. God intervenes, provides a substitute, and Abraham sacrifices an offering of thankfulness to God. And later Solomon would build his temple right there, Mount Moriah, for it was considered sacred space. See, Jacob at Bethel in Genesis 28 and Penuel and a few chapters later, after Jacob had a vision from God at Bethel, he awakes and says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, he says. And so he consecrates the place with a stone that he then pours oil over. And he says, this stone shall be God's house. We see examples from the tabernacle and the temple. Both of these physical locations were considered sacred space where Israel and Yahweh could have limited fellowship based on Israel's obedience to Yahweh's commands. Throughout Israel's complicated history, the glory of Solomon's temple, the lesser glory of that second temple, and even Herod's temple were all considered sacred space. Now, a word of qualification. Even ancient Israel would have understood that God was not housed or hemmed in, as it were, by these walls of His sacred dwelling place. At the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8, verse 21, Solomon says as much, where he poses this incredibly good question. And he says, but will God indeed... So imagine the glory of the dedication of the the most amazing temple Israel would ever know on on an earthly... concept of it. But, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? So this question is paradigm setting for how God would dwell on earth with man in the form of His own Son, Jesus Christ, many years later. How would this question be answered? As we move to the New Testament, we see first the end of the physical temple. We see Jesus and His disciples worshipped in the temple, even the Son of God during His earthly ministry, respected Israel's place of worship. And this would have been Herod's temple built to simply pacify Jews, not to glorify God. And this temple would have been approximately twice the size of Solomon's temple. Jesus and His disciples criticize abuses of the temple. Jesus drives out tax collectors in John chapter 2. We see Jesus personally replace the temple. In John chapter 4, Jesus said to the woman at the well, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here 
when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. So in Jesus, a significant change happens. All that was prefigured and foreshadowed under the old covenant, sacrifices, altars, temples, the Word, priests, etc., is fulfilled in the death and the resurrection of Christ. And we see, as it is probably too underemphasized, in Matthew 27, how significant it is that the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom when Jesus was crucified. This veil, 60 feet high, four inches thick. Josephus writes that horses on either side could, couldn't even pull it apart, running in opposite directions. And yet the finished work of Christ on the cross split it like an old dish rag. Amazing. So where would God now meet with His people for blessing? In and through the person of Jesus Christ. Christ Himself isn't the only way that the New Testament, though, speaks of the dwelling place of God, as Ephesians 2 makes clear for us. We see the church described as God's temple. We see individual Christians described as temples. In 1 Corinthians 6, believers are individually referred to as temples that are indwelt by God's Spirit. And this is the foundation for Paul's rationale that they should be morally pure with how they conduct themselves because you are a temple of God. You've been bought with a price and you have been called and consecrated to glorify God in your body. We see not only Christian individual Christians are, are understood as temples, but the Christian community as a whole is understood as the temple of God. We see this in multiple passages. But referring to the whole community, Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. We see Christians are a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, the passage that Tim read earlier, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. So Christians are a holy temple. And then in our text before us, we see our being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what's the point of looking at all these different passages? And these certainly aren't all the texts by any stretch. But this paints a picture for us. Here's the point. As one theologian puts it, he says, What the physical temple was to Israel, the church as a spiritual community has become to the world the holy residence of God indwelt by His Spirit. So the church individually as believers, collectively as a whole, is the dwelling place of God, His holy sanctuary, where unhindered fellowship with the Creator is regained and restored through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. God has done it. He has restored the fellowship that seemed impossible for millennia. He's done it, Christians. When we had no hope and were without God in this world, as Paul says, He has not left His wayward creation to implode on itself 
in sinful rebellion. He made peace through Christ's blood. One of the favorite definitions I've come across through the years of the church reads this way. The church is the covenant assembly of the triune king called by God from all nations in order to be his holy sanctuary. To be his holy sanctuary. And what's their vocation? To serve him as a kingdom of priests. So we see though there is one more aspect and that is that even the church isn't the final say. That however we cannot ignore the fact that God's church today is a pilgrim church. While we can fully embrace our citizenship in God's kingdom, we're not home yet. And although the church is hardly in its seminal form any longer since 2,000 years after Pentecost, we still worship with a future hope that longs for the day when our faith becomes sight around the heavenly temple described in John's revelation. And although we're referred to as individual temples ourselves, Revelation 1 refers to the redeemed as a kingdom and priests to God the Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. This is a restatement, almost exactly, of Exodus 19.6. The job of every priest was to serve God in His holy presence. And that is your eternal job. You have the privilege of serving God in His holy presence. So our corporate identity as God's temple unites now with our future vocation as temple servants. And amazing, as if this weren't enough, Hebrews 7 through 10 tells us that the Old Testament shadows were themselves copies of heavenly things. In other words, descriptions for how to build the temple and how God would be worshipped under, under the Old Covenant were copies of heavenly realities. The dimensions of the new Jerusalem measure up to the exact ginormous cube, identical on a macro level to the Holy of Holies. In other words, God's eternal temple is one huge Holy of Holies. That a veil has been rent, and you are welcome to draw near. The Apostle Paul was fired up about these ideas. And he was fired up about the idea of the Ephesian church grasping them and realizing them, coming to terms with them, believing them to their very core. The biblical storyline of God's decisive, redemptive plan to once again dwell with His people in unmitigated fellowship. This is what God is doing through the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you are outside of the citizenship of God's kingdom this morning, and you do not belong to the people of God, Jesus bids you come. In fact, He, he tells you to hear these words. And that there's a big difference between two categories, both here, but one is a doer and one does not do. One does not obey. So his call to you is not only to hear what you've heard this morning, but then to believe. And what does this look like? This looks like 
the gift given to you by the Spirit of repentance, turning in hatred for all the loyalties and allegiances that you once thought would satisfy and once thought would be a good Lord to you, but has always, always, always failed you. The Lordship of Christ will never fail. And citizenship in His kingdom will never disappoint. Brothers and sisters, let's think differently about one another. We are God's family, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, united by King Jesus, who has made us citizens of His kingdom. So let's conduct ourselves as if these things are true. Let's conduct ourselves as if we believe these precious promises and let's give ourselves to the growth of this temple that we long to see more and more and more and more people from every tribe and tongue come to worship within the assembly of the redeemed. What an amazing, unspeakable privilege we have to not only know these things, but then to worship God because of them. Let's worship Him in prayer even now. Our Father, we come to You amazed at the patience. You, 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 could, have, you could have wiped us out, Father. As the children of Adam, we deserve nothing but anger and wrath. And yet, the gift of your patient redemption of your people, bringing it ever so perfectly throughout the history of Israel and bringing it to fruition and fulfilling these amazing promises in the work of Christ. It blows our minds. It amazes us. It causes us to worship. Thank you for what these symbols mean, Father, that we can come to you. We can pray to you now. And we can lift up sacrifices of praise. And we can look forward to a day where perfect worship in the heavenly temple in which we serve you as a kingdom of priests forever in total joy and without even a twinge of sinful desire. Oh, we long to be there, Father. And yet, until then, help us to give ourselves to relating to one another as if these things are indeed true. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.